Would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 18? Okay, Matthew 1, 18 to 25. This week we're going to study Joseph, and next week Mary, Jesus' father and mother. Now you understand, of course, that Jesus' father is God, and that in John you see this constant theme of Jesus honoring his father, saying that he's seen his father's work, he must be about his father's work, that he's here to obey his father. But Jesus did have a father here on earth, and that's who we're going to study. And we're going to go to Matthew 1, beginning with verse 18. Now the birth, this is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Now let's go through it verse by verse and just look at some things that Scripture records for us here that we should notice. Um, First of all, we take for granted this text dealing with Joseph. Two of the Gospels, however, don't give us any record of Joseph. There are only two Gospels that do record Joseph's existence and what he did for his wife and his son. Matthew is one of them, and it adds to the birth account, the account of Jesus' birth, this account of what happened before his birth. And so it begins with, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed. Now what does it mean to be betrothed? Well, betrothal is analogous to our uh, condition known as engagement, um, but with a difference. It's much, much more intense than engagement is today. If you break an engagement It's inconvenient. Um, Sometimes you have to return, you know, uh, presents. And sometimes the invitations have already been printed. But it happens. We heard about a case up in Wheaton a couple years ago where um, I think it was like the night before the wedding that the engagement was broken off. And so I think they went ahead and had the reception. Um because the food had already been bought and the hall and everything, so they went ahead and had a, I'm sure it was just a howling good time. (laughs) (laughs) Betrothal was a little different in that if you were betrothed, you were actually the wife of the man and you were actually the husband of the woman. And so if you broke a betrothal, It was a divorce. It was called a divorce. If your husband died in that period, you were a widow. Your wife, you were a widower. And so it was a period of time after the negotiations between the families and before physical consummation when the the bridegroom comes for the bride. All right? Very intense. It was called betrothal. If you go to a wedding, which some of us are going to be doing in the next couple of weeks, you will hear the betrothal in the wedding ceremony. 
you've probably wondered why there are two vowels in every marriage ceremony. You know, they say, will you, and then they say, do you. You ever wondered about that? And the reason is the first one is the compression of betrothal into marriage that we do in our wedding ceremony. And so the will you is looking towards the future, will you, and you both say yes, and then repeat your vowels. I, Tim, take you, Mary Lee, to be. So the first one is, will you? And then the second one, I do. Um, Now, why do we do that in wedding ceremonies? We do that in wedding ceremonies because the only thing that's required of a marriage, really required, is that of their own volition, freely, a man and a woman vow till death do they part. All right? And so what you want is to make sure that the man and the woman are both entering into it of their own free will. And that's why you say, will you? That's a time when the, you know, the dad and mom are gone. All right. In other words, it's ready. And they have to answer, yes, I intend to do this very, very, very serious thing I am about to do. And once they've said, I will, then you're ready to say, do you? All right. And so that's betrothal. It's when everybody completely sober. Now, why did I bring up being sober? Well, because if you go back and read the accounts of court cases in the Middle Ages, you will find that the reason weddings were brought into the church is that people were drunk and got married. And it caused all kinds of problems in the church and in society. You don't want drunk people taking vows. Because then when they sober up and realize what they've done, they lie. And so if you go back and read cases that come before elders of churches or before the church ecclesiastical courts, you'll find statements like, he drank marriage to me. And you go, what? He drank marriage to you? And so what you want is when they're sober, you want the betrothal to happen. And when their parents are sober also. Because back then, probably equally as important as the the couple themselves was the family on each side. And the families are asked, will you allow this marriage to happen? And often there was an exchange of something of value between the two families that confirmed the betrothal. All right? Now, why would you do that? Well, you do that because marriage, contrary to the misty-eyed visions of our sweet couples that are about to plight their troth, is hard work. Marriage, let me repeat, Josh and Nisha, is hard work. It's very hard work. And so what you want is you want to maximize the investment. And it's not enough for the husband and wife, the future husband and wife, to have a lot invested. You must have the families have a lot invested too. Because the families a lot of times are what breaks up marriages. And so you want to make it in their financial best interest for them to not do what they're going to want to do as soon as the marriage happens, which is to break up the marriage because they don't like the woman, because they don't like the woman's parents, because the woman married a man that's preparing for ministry, and we all know where that goes, you know. And so betrothal was that period of time when the man and woman agreed, the family agreed, They came together and negotiated a contract that put them in a situation where they would not want to break the contract, okay? And approximately a year later, they would then have the consummation where the bridegroom would go and get the bride. You know the stories in scripture of the the other women with their oil lamps, right? Or you know the picture of Christ coming for us, all right? The bride would go and get the bride and the marriage would be consummated. Everybody knew what consummation was. It was that moment when finally the husband and wife were intimate. And it had not happened until that time. I was at a motel or hotel 
a couple years ago. I don't remember where or why. And I was walking in. It was in the evening. And um, I was observing a wedding party. And I heard the bride say to her child, her son, uh, you go home with grandma. Uh, Daddy and I are going to stay here tonight. And they were dressed in, in, in the wedding gown and the suit, the zoot suit, okay? That, that stupid thing known as a tuxedo, which isn't a tuxedo, actually. <laughs> and I thought about it, and I, I could have been wrong, but it was clear to me that for quite a while there had already been a household established, and that that household had given birth to a child, and that that child was old enough to understand the explanation of what was going to go on. And for some reason, who knows what reason, the couple had decided to get married. Well, back at the time of Joseph and Mary, you didn't have sex until the bridegroom came for the bride, and that was the end of the betrothal, the looking forward. That was the beginning of marriage proper, consummation, okay? And so what it says here is that Joseph and Mary, if you look at the text, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. So we're in that year period of time in between negotiation, the contractual obligations. They're they're husband and wife, but they're not yet intimate. In that period, this is when all of a sudden what happens? What happens is that Mary turns up pregnant with child. You look at the Greek, and you know what the Greek says? It's very interesting. It it talks about guts. I won't get more specific than that. But the reference of pregnancy is to the mother's internal parts. And there's so much about the, the story of Jesus being born that just in technicolor makes clear what abortion is. So Mary is carrying a human being, and this human being is God, all right? Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Why did they not come together yet? Well, because it's the period of betrothal, and you did not come together during the period of betrothal. This was a period when the marriage had not been consummated. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, did her husband know that she was with child? Yes. Did her husband know that she was with child by the Holy Spirit? No. Because you pick up the story. And it says, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, it's clear this is giving approval to Joseph, right? Because it says being a righteous man. And so Joseph was a righteous man, right? Now, what does it connect his righteousness with in the text. Look at the text. Exactly what is it that's righteous about Joseph in the text? It says two things about him, right? It says, in connection with him being righteous, it says, not wanting to disgrace her, plan to send her away secretly. Now, we can connect disgrace and secretly with each other, right? Because he doesn't want to embarrass her publicly and shame her, and so he's going to do it quietly. So those two are one. He's going to do it quietly, but then the second thing is, he's going to send her away. So he's sending her away, and he's going to do it quietly. Those are the two things. Now, which of those two things is what indicates his righteousness? Because the righteousness of the text is connected with what follows, right? Which of the two is what makes him a righteous man? What indicates that he's righteous? Well, both. Number one, he's righteous in that he will not go ahead and consummate his marriage with a woman who is immoral. Now, this is very difficult to preach today. Because today... How many people are virgins when they're married? 
You know that Jesus says that any man that divorces his wife and marries another one, and then it has a little exception clause, and it says except for, and the Greek word is porneia, uncleanness, sexual, sexual uncleanness. Any man that divorces his wife and marries another, except for porneia, sexual uncleanness, he commits adultery. And so we know that God is opposed to divorce. Except for Pernan. Well, this would have been the perfect case of Pornan, where you've been betrothed, which means that you've agreed, they've agreed, your families have agreed, everybody's agreed that you're now husband and wife. The contract has been signed, the, the, the money's been exchanged, and now you're what? As a woman, you're waiting for the bridegroom. You know, honestly, today, remember I said last week that the church today is a huge conspiracy to rob God of the thing that he commands. And if you think about a woman who is waiting for the bridegroom to come for her, what is she waiting for? She's waiting for him to come for her and bring her into his chamber, his bed. She's waiting for her husband to take her to bed. That's what she's waiting for. And in that interim period where she's supposed to be waiting, what has happened? What has happened is she's found to already have been bedded. And so Joseph has been cuckolded. And you go, what? And I say, hey, it's funny what words die. You talk about a demeaning term. I would put that at the very top of English language. It's spelled C-U-C-K-O-L-D. And that's the word for Joseph in his situation. He is a man who has been shown to not have the devotion of his wife and therefore to be prepared to bring into his home a child that belongs to another man. And so he's a fool. He's, he's been cuckolded because he has a woman who's to be faithful to him, who is now pregnant by a man other than himself, and he's about to bring that child into his home and to have to pay to raise another man's child. All these things are foreign to us today because we have no morality, no commitments, and no obedience, even in the church. And so the whole concept, I say to you, what's wrong with adultery? And you say, well, God says it's wrong. And I say, yeah, but what's wrong with adultery? And you say, well, isn't that enough? I say, but what's wrong with it? And you say, well, it hurts your wife, if you're a man. Hurts your husband. I say, yeah, but what's wrong with it? Isn't that enough? And honestly, if I were to go through that with you, most of you would never say what's wrong with it is that your wife, if she commits adultery, brings into your home a child that you are not the father of. And we say, well, come on, we all adopt. I mean, what's wrong with that? And I say, that's the reason the church is in the condition the church is in. Nobody has any offense at the church being filled with people that don't have God as their father. And the reason is we don't have any sexual morality in our homes and in our marriages. We commit adultery. We're fornicators. We're adulterers. And so in the church, what we think is, well, every child has a right to be loved. And so if a child's going to grow up and not be loved, we say, kill the child, (laughs) Abort the child, because every child has a right to be a wanted child, right? You've all heard that, right? Everybody knows I'm talking sanity according to our culture. And then once the child's wanted, the child has a right to grow up in a home where the mother is, and it really doesn't matter whether the child belongs to somebody else or to the father of that home. As a matter of fact, it really doesn't matter whether there is a father in the home. 
And so we go back to this story, and we pick it up, and we read it, and we go, Joseph and Mary, it's so sweet. It's so sweet. I hope we get to sing. Um, Silent night at Christmas, Christmas Eve. Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus. And we just ditz brain right over the top of what scripture actually tells us about the situation, which is that they were betrothed and all of a sudden the things that happen to a body when it gets pregnant begin to happen to Mary. And Joseph, being a righteous man, is not sentimental, is not romantic, is not saying, love always expects the best. He's not sat down. Can you imagine if this happened in this church today, what we as elders and pastors would say to Joseph? I mean, have you ever thought about that? I know what I would say. I'd say, what's wrong with you, Joseph? How could you put her away? Don't you love her? Just because she failed, after all, you're a sinner too, don't you know that? Read Hosea and come back and talk to me, Joseph. Can you imagine what we would say to Joseph today? Being unrighteous, we would say to him, Joseph, don't be so judgmental. Joseph, don't be the elder brother. You know, the elder brother of the prodigal son. Joseph, we're supposed to be about grace in the church. How could you, how could you put her away? What's wrong with you, Joseph? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about how we as elders and pastors would counsel Joseph today? I have not the slightest question that 99 out of every 100, and that's, it's probably too low. It's probably 100 out of 100 churches. Everybody would counsel Joseph, what? To go ahead and to take Mary as his wife, if she was willing to have him, of course, and then to get consummated and and to raise the child in the home. And the Bible tells us that Joseph was a righteous man and therefore had in his mind to put her away. And I want to read to you what Calvin says about this. Calvin says, and I'm going to play a guessing game. Those of you that were in the first service, don't, don't, don't blow it. All right. Calvin says this, Joseph was not so soft and blank. And I just want you to take a guess Soft and Joseph was not so soft and blank. And I want you to guess what word is that that blank there? What word do you think it is? What? Romantic, no. Not cowardly. Huh? Not passive. Not righteous. Come on. I can't hear you. Effeminate? You said feminine and he said effeminate. Now that's pretty interesting. Our two wordsmiths. Well, you are too, but you failed on the you word last week. So, Okay, now none of you have gotten it, although those two got the closest. And it's interesting that you haven't gotten it because it's obvious once I say it. So I'm going to give you another go at it. Joseph was not so soft and... Nope. Not weak. Come on. Ah, who said it? Say it again. Actually, I thought you said the right word, but that's the close. No, wait, wait, wait. That's the closest. What he actually says is not so soft and motherly. Now, listen. Calvin did not think that he was taking on feminists by saying that. And Calvin was not a sexist when he said that. Do you understand? Soft and motherly. Is that, con- is that a condemnation of being soft and motherly? Absolutely not. If you've been raised by a mother who is not soft, it's horrible. It's horrible. 
What you want from a mother is softness. What every husband wants from his wife is softness. He doesn't want his wife to be a man. How many of you men want to marry a man? Taylor, I thought you were going to put your hand up, but you were just scratching your shoulder. (laughs) I'm I'm going to button my sport coat there. I'm a little too soft. (laughs) Now listen. In this account of Joseph being a righteous man, you're not just learning who Joseph was, but you're learning what righteousness is, and you're not simply learning what righteousness is, you are learning what righteous manhood is. Righteous manhood makes judgments. Righteous manhood establishes standards. Righteous manhood is capable of accepting pain for the sake of long-term gain. This is the nature of manhood. And when we come to a text of Scripture that says anything about sexuality, which in our perversity we relabel gender... When we come to a text of scripture that says anything about sexuality at all, we always deny it and overlook it and act as if it isn't there. Look, Joseph, says Calvin, was not so soft and motherly as to provide shelter for such great wickedness under the pretext of being compassionate. And those of you that love your husbands, and I ask you why you love your husband, that's why you love your husband. Ultimately, it's not because he cuddles with you. Although that's, that's nice. What you want from a husband is for him to be righteous and therefore to condemn what is impure, to set standards for your children, and to not have given himself so much to sin himself that his conscience doesn't allow him to establish the standards. You want elders to be fathers of the church and to have not sinned so much that they would never dream of enforcing standards on the church. Joseph was a righteous what? Person? No, he's a righteous man. And so he established the standards, but he had a lover's heart, and that's part of his righteousness. Standards and tenderness. This is always men that are godly. Standards and tenderness. So Joseph is righteous for two reasons. Number one, he will not be so soft and motherly that he just gives up on the standards. And number two, he will not expose her and her family to public shame. And so he's going to do it privately and quietly and secretly. And listen, there's not a woman here, married, single, I don't care who it is, there's not a woman here that won't marry a man like that. I mean, come on, I'm a man and I fall in love with Joseph reading about that. I'll give him my daughter. Listen, our entire society is absolutely committed to destroying sexuality at the same time as it's in bondage to it. And so every single time in church, you go to church and you read something like this, the points that are made are asexual. They're gender neutral. They're just like, what does that have to do with anything? And you're being told what a godly man is here. And the two things are what? That he sets the standard and guards it in the home. And that he, his heart is, is gaga over Mary and her family as he disciplines her. You know, that I have a friend that I was trying to get to move here, and my friend was so scandalized that one of the men of this church in a private gathering one time was confessing about how difficult it was to discipline his wife. And my friend, a very intelligent man, that's probably his problem, um, 
my friend was just scandalized that, that any man would ever talk about disciplining his wife. And I wondered, did he ever read the story of Joseph and Mary? Did it ever occur to him that Joseph is said to be righteous because he was committed to disciplining his wife? Because remember, they're called husband and wife during betrothal. Now, is there any married man here who has not been disciplined by his wife? <laughs> Come on, let's, let's, let's air out the secret. Let me ask it a different way. Is there any man here who's married who has not been disciplined by his wife in the last 24 hours? Okay, here I am, right? I'll tell you about me. This last week, I have a habit of not keeping an engagement, a weekly engagement. I won't tell you what it is because then you'd despise me even more. But the people that work here know what that engagement is. So I'm up in my room writing a letter to a guy, and I work a lot up in my bedroom at a desk. If you're women, you can go up and see it today. And Mary Lee comes up, that sweet woman that I'm married to, and she, I know what's coming. She's coming up the stairs. She walks over. Now, Pastor Carell has called me, and I have not answered the phone because I know why he's calling me. And so now Mary Lee comes upstairs and she walks over by the desk and, and, you know, my guts tightens up. I know what's coming. And then just in the feminine, sort of lilting, kind of loving, affectionate way that Mary Lee has, she says, I can't tell you what she says because then I'll give up. But I'm going to tell you, but don't despise me please, okay? Every preacher that preaches to you is just like me. He has real sin, and this is real sin. She says to me, don't you have a staff meeting now? Now, normally, I will respond one of two ways when she says that to me, like every week. I'll say to her, yeah, I know, I need to get over there. I'm going to leave. Or I'll say, would you just bug off? Normally, that's how I respond. But this week, I sunk to a level of depravity even worse than normal. Because this week, I did not acknowledge that she had spoken. <laughs> I didn't. I acted like there was nothing but air up in that bedroom, <laughs> you know? Now listen, discipline is a reality in our lives. We're disciplined by police officers. We're disciplined by music teachers. We're disciplined by coaches. We're disciplined by our superior at work. We're disciplined by our children. I mean, come on. You all know you're disciplined by your children, right? Do you know this? Are you observant? Are you there? Hello? You're disciplined by your children. And it doesn't start when they leave your home. It starts when they're in your home and they start crying when you're yelling at your wife. Okay? So you're disciplined by your children. You're disciplined by your wives. Men, are you disciplined by your wife? And is it a godly discipline? Yes, 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 yes. And so Joseph was going to discipline his wife. He had an obligation, and because he was righteous, he did not turn away from the obligation, but he committed himself to doing it. And it's very interesting that in the text, it indicates that beforehand, he had made a decision what he was going to do. Why? Well, because he didn't want to do it. He knew what he had to do, and he didn't want to do it. That's why he had already decided he was going to do it. And so what happens is Joseph and Mary are betrothed. She turns up pregnant. He's a righteous man and knows he has to discipline her. But he's a righteous man and loves her and is going to do it secretly. And right at that moment, what happens? 
right at that moment, he's asleep and he has a dream. Now, you should not get from this that every dream you should take over to the soothsayer on South Walnut and pay her money to find out what your dream meant. But there are times when your dreams mean something. More than that, there are times when your dream is a direct message from God. So you say, well, how do I know which is which? And I say, you'll know. You'll have a dream someday, some of you, which will be as clear to you as it was to Joseph that God is telling you exactly what to do. And here's the dream that Joseph had. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And that's a statement of the condition of the Christian life. If you're living by faith, you're always, always trying to not be afraid. Because living for God is death and consequently looks stupid, looks uh, foolish, looks scandalous to yourself, to your loved ones, and to everybody that watches you. Every step you take is stupid if it's done by faith. And so Joseph is committed to being righteous. He's going to put her away. He's going to put her away quietly. And he is what? He's scared. Why is he scared? Well, he's scared because of what people are going to think. Right? Do not be afraid to take her. He's afraid to take her as his wife because he doesn't want people to think the wrong thing about him. He's afraid to discipline her. Why? Well, it may well be because there were financial repercussions of breaking off the engagement. It may well be because he doesn't know that he can find anybody else to marry him. We don't know why, but he's afraid. And the angel, isn't this sweet? The angel says, don't be afraid. You know, that's always what angels say to us. Don't be afraid. When... Reality breaks into our world. Reality being angels almost always the angels say, Don't be afraid, fear not. And so it's so sweet that God sends this message, don't be afraid. Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. What? Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who had been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't say the fetus. I always point out at Christmas time that in our perverse and wicked, beyond belief world, it would be hard to imagine a child who would be more likely to be aborted than Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because Jesus was born out of wedlock. And Jesus was born to two people who were about as poor as they could be. I've talked to women who were in Mary's situation, except the child in them was not by the Holy Spirit. And I've had those women tell me that when they went home at Christmas break... Campus Crusade woman it was. That they went, when they went home at Christmas break, that their parents, her parents, told her that she had to abort her child. And she said she didn't want to. And they said, if you do not abort your child, we will not pay for you to go back second semester. And so she sat at home, and there was a a conflict of wills between her and her parents. She wanted to protect her baby. They wanted her to kill it. And after a couple of weeks, she gave in and went and killed the baby. And then they said, okay, now we'll pay for you to go back to IU. And then she came into my office. You go down to Planned Parenthood, that obscene killing place in our town, and you watch the people that go in there. This is what I did with my daughters when they were growing up. I went down and I picketed there and I had my daughters watch. Little Hannah, little Michael, I don't know that Heather so much. You watch them. And you know what is often the case is you watch them going in 
either their boyfriend or their mother has the most awful look on their faces as they walk in. Do you understand what I'm saying? So who's the moral agent there? Is it the woman or is it her mother and her boyfriend? And you look at Jesus and you just take it for granted that Jesus wasn't killed in the womb. And I say, why? Why was Jesus not killed in the womb? I know some of you are thinking now, why do you always bring up abortion? Why do you always bring up sexuality? But listen, if you're preaching this text, let's just say that you were a man and you could preach, all right? If you were preaching this text, I can't for the life of me figure out how you could avoid speaking about the nature of fatherhood and manhood here. How could you avoid it? I don't see how you could avoid it. And I can't imagine how you could avoid speaking about abortion here. We're talking about an unborn child who's unwanted. And you say, well, not unwanted. And I say, well, they killed him. And you say, what are you talking about? And I say, well, you know how Rachel could not be comforted? Remember that? Remember, he sent his soldiers out to kill all the children that age? You say, well, they didn't get Jesus. And I say, yeah, it just took him 33 years. Jesus was unwanted. That's the reason that it was a terrible burden for Mary to have this pregnancy of the Messiah. Because she loved her son. And she saw his entire life was a life of humility and suffering. And then they killed him. So, listen, I don't see how you can possibly avoid talking about the nature of righteous manhood here. I don't see how you can avoid talking about the nature of abortion and the life of unborn children in the womb here. How do you do it? I think the way you do it is you figure out how to scratch people's ears in such a way that they feel good. And then you do that, and that means you avoid the sins that permeate your congregation, which is what? It's sexual immorality, and it's the slaughter of unborn children. That's what permeates every congregation of this country. And you go, well, what do you mean by that? Sexual immorality, I'm willing to grant you, because men do some wicked things on their computers. I say, you know 30% of pornography now is for women? You say, well, that's unbelievers. That's not here. I say, well, then how come all the epistles of the New Testament talk about sex all the time and morality? You say, well, that was back then, but we've evolved. And I say, yes, into private perversion. At least then they had to be public with their perversion. Now we've perfected it so it's in our own bedrooms. Listen. Every sin that scripture records being committed by the patriarchs, being committed by the members of churches of the epistles of the New Testament, is here today. And it is intended by God that when you read the account of Joseph, that you, by reading about him, make certain commitments in your life. Joseph here is an example to you. Joseph is an example to you. What is he an example of? Well, I already went through the fact that being a righteous man, he was going to discipline, but with tenderness and affection, gentleness, right? So that's an example. You're with me, right? Okay, what else? Joseph is an example that when an angel comes to him and says, don't be afraid, go ahead and take her as your wife, Joseph took her as his wife. We take it for granted. We think, well, of course. I mean, if an angel appeared to you, wouldn't you obey? And I say, how about Jonah? You know, Jonah had a message from God. He didn't obey, right? So what makes you think that I would obey if an angel came to me? So we see here that Joseph obeys the command of God. What else do we see about Joseph? We see that Joseph was very poor, 
And nevertheless, he took this woman, he took her child, and he provided for them. How did he provide for them? Well, if you know the story of Scripture, you know that he provided for them by protecting them. That when the angel told him that the baby was in jeopardy, Joseph picked up his home and moved down to Egypt. You remember that? And then when his baby was safe, the angel came and told him again, and then he picked up his home and he moved back when the angel told him to do it. In other words, Joseph was faithful to do what God commanded. Did Joseph have faith? Yes, he was a righteous man. I say, no, 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 I'm not asking you whether or not he was righteous. I'm saying, did he have faith? And I say, yes, he was a righteous man. And you say, well, Yeah, but righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He was looking forward to Christ's sacrifice. And I say, yes, because he was a righteous man. And you say, are you saying that he was saved by his righteousness? I say, no. I'm talking about his faith. And you said, no, you talked about his righteousness. And I say, no, it's his faith. And you say, no, 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 it's it's God. It's God that does it all. And I say, see, there you go. You're trading what God demands for what you want to give him. You're trading your sentiment, your feelings, your your spiritual thoughts, your mysticism for obedience. And you cannot separate obedience from faith. You can't do it. The man who has no obedience has no faith. And so we are presented, Joseph, as a model of a life of faith. And what it tells us is that he was righteous, that he obeyed. And that he enforced obedience in his home. This last week, somebody sent me a link to a church out in Montana of my former denomination, the PCA where they had this post up about their church. Uh, The local brewery had just named a a new kind of beer after their church. And uh, they're real trendy. They're real hip. You know, they're real sort of cool, you know. And so after getting this beer named after them, now they were talking about dope. You know, you go from beer to dope, right? Right? And they were talking about how if you don't smoke dope and you look down on people that do, you're a legalist. Because it's all about grace. And and so, like, you know, whether or not you smoke dope isn't the issue. The issue is grace. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you read the article, and when you're done, you think, neato. I just feel so much better about myself. Now I can be a dopehead. It might hurt your memory, but, you know, I'm going to be 57 in a few days, so it's past time of me worrying about my memory. And this is what the church is today. It goes through every single thing, from obeying the law to not committing adultery to uh, don't ask, don't tell, and it has a, a different take than any other time in church history. And it's all a take on the basis of grace. Because in our fat, rich time, we have come to understand grace in a way that no previous generation of Christian ever understood it. In our fat, rich time, (laughs) we have evolved so that we understand the nature of God and righteousness and truth in a way that no previous generation of Christians ever understood it. And here we have Joseph, and Joseph, we're told, is a righteous man. And and you know how we know he's righteous? Because he obeyed, and because he enforced obedience in his home. And he didn't think that his obedience saved him. He knew that he was a sinner. He knew that his hope was the Messiah. Because how? Well, because he's a righteous man. You say, no, 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 no. If he's righteous, that means that he himself is doing what's right and avoiding doing what's wrong. That's all that means. And I say, no, 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 no. Scripture never separates righteousness and obedience. It just doesn't do it. Every time you find yourself wanting to separate the true and act as if you can have faith and be disobedient, 
You're wrong. Scripture never allows that. And every time you want to think that you can be obedient and not look to Christ for your righteousness, you're wrong. Scripture doesn't let you do that. And so here we have Joseph. He's a righteous man, and so he's obedient. Right together, right together. And here's what we see in Scripture. What we see is that that's enough for a life. That's it. That's it. It is enough for a life that a man lives a clean life, loves and cares for his wife and child, protects them, provides for them, and then is gone. Do you understand what I'm saying to you men? You don't need to be excellent for God. You don't need to do great things for God. What you need is to be obedient, to live by faith in the Son of God and His righteousness, to love your wife and your children, to provide for them and to protect them, and then to die. Okay? And that is a life worth living. That is godliness. Guess what? Joseph's gone. Eh, we see him a couple of times after this. But he's gone. He's done what he has to do. He's righteous. He obeys. He loves. He protects. He's gone. That's it. Today, evangelicals are in love with pursuing excellence. And listen, do me a favor. Don't pursue excellence. You music students, please give it up. I read last night a profile of this dude that's funding the Contemporary Art Museum in L.A. His name is... uh, Broad, B-R-O-A-D, B-R-O-A-D. But the New Yorker informed me that you're supposed to pronounce it Broad. (laughs) He's a billionaire. And he's pursuing excellence, and it's one of the most disgusting things you'll ever see in your life, and it's not much different than many of you who are musicians. The only thing is you feel slightly more self-righteous because you actually have technique on an instrument as opposed to just money. (laughs) But listen, music, whatever it is that's your thing, God doesn't need your thing. What God needs is obedience. And you say, well, I'm playing my instrument in obedience to God. And I say, are you really? And you say, well, yes. Why would you say, are you really? And I say, well, let me see your mother. Let me see your mother next to you. Let me watch you and your mother for five minutes, and I'll tell you whether you're really playing your instrument for God. Because what I've seen after many years is that instruments, maybe most of the time, are a function of parents living their lives through you and not a function of you yourself. I can remember not wanting Michael to give up the flute. She was good. And my ego would have been so stroked if Michael had been a good... (laughs) I'll spare you since it's worship. Every graduate of Wheaton is going to solve the AIDS problem in Africa. God does not want our excellence. God wants our obedience. And if we are to stand out, he will make us stand out. And he's capable of doing that. He made Joseph stand out. Joseph was just living his life and all of a sudden God decided to make him an example of excellence. And he was exactly the kind of person you and I would choose to have an example of excellence. He was wealthy. He had a good degree from the best school. He had a wife from a good family. The pedigree was awesome. And they had a summer house up on Lake Michigan where they could go to have the baby. 
And he didn't talk with an, with an ignorant accent from southern Indiana. And he didn't chew. And everybody who was anything in the community knew Richard Corey. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? If you're a Christian today, and if you're Reformed especially, what you are is you are pursuing excellence for Jesus Christ. And in the, and in the end, an awful lot of time, that excellence is what whoops up on righteousness and kills it. Because you end up giving yourself to the pursuit of a name and of wealth and of respect and leaving righteousness behind. And so what I want you to do this Christmas morning is I want you to look at Joseph. Just look at him. Don't dolly him up. If he was from here, he was not from Bloomington, and he wasn't enrolled at IU. Doesn't mean it's wrong for you to be enrolled at IU. Don't misunderstand me. I'm all for pedigree. (laughs) I mean, look, it's your tension, not mine. I'm not going to resolve it for you. That's something you need to do with God. But if Joseph was here, he was from outside. He was from Martinsville. He was from Clay County. And he spoke with an ignorant accent because his wife hadn't gone to college and changed the way he spoke. And he didn't drive a nice Honda. He didn't drive a Toyota Tundra. He drove an old beater F-150, probably 1972. Okay, do you understand? And when it came time for him to recognize the gift of God of a child, he did not give the turtle dove and the sheep. But he was the class that was so poor that God allowed him to give just two turtle doves. He was uneducated. Mary was uneducated. And all of a sudden, what you have in front of you is unbelievable excellence. But the excellence has nothing to do with how they play. I won't say it. The clarinet. That's like halfway in between, okay? (laughs) The clarinet. I was proud of you today, but I wished it had been the sax. Um, it doesn't have to do with the $25,000, $30,000 harp that Grace Farner, any of you remember Grace Farner, that her parents had bought her. It doesn't have to do with the PhD in English literature. It has to do with obedience. Obedience. And that obedience is a gift of God, and it is faith. And what we need today, and what every father who knows God wants today, is sons and future sons-in-law who are faithful to provide for their families, (laughs) to work hard, and to rule kindly and firmly, and to protect, and then to die. And if you give me that for my daughters, I'm happy. How many of us who are fathers of daughters want our daughters to marry a man that has inherited wealth? No. What we want is a son-in-law who will work. The older I've gotten, the more I've realized that God has been so kind in giving me sons-in-law that work! Here's an idea! Work! Jesus grew up and was a carpenter. Did you know that? Why was he a carpenter? He was a carpenter because he had a father that had calluses, and that father taught him to work. This is Joseph.
He's righteous. He's committed to purity and to the law of God and to enforcing it in his own home with tenderness and love. And he protects Jesus when the angel tells him that Jesus could be killed. He, he, he moves his house down to Egypt. And then he moves back again when the child's safe. And then what? From all appearances from scripture, he then dies. That's it. That's it. And so those of you men who have been faithful in these things, nobody else has anything on you. Would you like to exchange your life for Mr. Broad's life? Broad to you? Donald Trump's life? Barack Obama's life? George Bush's life? When was George Bush at his greatest? Well, if you saw the game against the Giants and you saw him with his dad. It was, it was drop-dead gorgeous. Simple things, men, simple things. Let's pray.